Hey everybody, it's John. Welcome or welcome back to the Rock Christian Families podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can access all of our recent message content. And actually, the YouTube channel is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. So when my oldest son, William, he's almost seven, when he was around two years old, we went to, the Chicago, we went to Chicago for the second time of his life. So for a seven-year-old, he's done a lot of travel, more than most young children have done, I'd say. Um, so we went to Chicago to spend time with my family for Christmas time. I'm originally from Canada, but my parents moved to Chicago when I moved to Australia. So we went to Chicago, and first of all, my first reaction of getting off the plane, getting out of the airport and into the, air, uh, into the uh, parking lot was just like needles hitting my face with how cold it was. I'll give you a picture of how cold it was. We left Townsville at 40 degrees. We arrived in Chicago at minus 40 degrees. So we had an 80 degree temperature difference. If you've never witnessed that before, it is just excruciating. I'd way rather come to heat than I would go back to cold. Because Anyhow, that's not a part of the story. Amen. I got an amen back there. And so anyhow, my uh, William, when he was just born, like we went when he was um, like, wouldn't remember the climate. But he, when the first snowfall happened, And if you've never experienced snow before, there's just something majestic. There's something really beautiful about snow. And as a two-year-old, he had seen movies. He had seen photos of snow. He had seen, like, his time before in Chicago. And so he sort of, he had an idea. But there's nothing like seeing the actual snowfall in person. And I have this amazing photo of him just standing at this glass door with uh, there's like ice starting to form on the windows. It's just getting dark and the snow is falling and it's just a really beautiful picture. And he just was mesmerized by snow as he would be as an Australian going into seeing snow. Fiona was mesmerized by the snow, my wife. And for me, I mean, growing up, I saw snow every winter, right? Growing up in Canada, every winter there was snow, but it didn't matter how many times I had seen it. That first snowfall was just, it left me in awe. I just, if there was like a 10% chance of snow on the, on the weather forecast, I was looking out my window literally all day, just waiting to see like one white thing come down from the sky. Because then I knew like winter is here. Like as you go from summer to autumn and then trees are starting to go from green to orange to yellow to red, and then it starts to get cold and then the snow happens every single year. I was just in awe. There are just some things in life that leave us in, like that the pictures and the pamphlets and the movies just can't do it justice until you see it in person. I remember driving through the Grand Canyon when I was a teenager. We were going um, from Canada to Mexico for a missions trip. We went through the Grand Canyon, and I had seen photos before, but photos compared to seeing it in person just doesn't do it justice. There are some things in life that you just have to see for yourself. I remember I went to Disneyland as a young kid. This is just going down memory lane. I was just trying to think of all the things that made my jaw drop. And I mean, I wasn't a fan of the rides because I was, I was afraid. I was, I was seven. Um, but just getting up to the, the, the front sort of arches and, and entering into Disneyland, just nothing could do it justice. There are some things in life 
that just don't do it justice. There's some things in life that just, no matter how many pamphlets or videos or movies or how many people talk to you about it, you just can't capture how magnificent and how beautiful and how wonderful it is until you see it in person. And the same is true when it comes to God. I love the lyrics to this particular song. It says, whatever picture I have isn't big enough. Whatever picture I have isn't good enough. Whatever picture I have doesn't sum you up, couldn't sum you up. Today we're in part two of our series, The Fundamental List, Recovering the Essentials of Our Faith. And reality is, when it comes to Christianity, there's a, there's a bunch of different expressions of the Christian faith depending on what era you were born into versus what uh, country you live in. Uh, and what we want to do is clear the fog, strip back Christianity back to its bones, and get back to the essentials, get back to the fundamentals, the can't-do-withouts. And we want to answer this question. What must one believe to be a faithful follower of Jesus. We're not talking about do over this series. We talk about do at the rock a lot, and we'll continue to talk about do a lot, because the reality is simply believing doesn't make any difference really in this world. It's when we put our faith into action and, and apply our faith and do things, does things start to change. So we talk about do a lot, but today we're talking about believe. What must one believe to be a faithful follower of Jesus? What is essential? Like, what is absolutely essential versus what's just cultural? What's just, uh, what's just traditional? What's peripheral? This is so important because Christianity is like a giant house of living rooms, and each room, just living rooms, each room has its double open doors to the outside because they want to invite people in. But each living room would look very different to the other living room. Each living room will have different terms and conditions, if you will. Each living room will have a different view of different verses in the Bible. Each living room might even have different versions of the Bible. Each room is just very different, and you might have grown up in this living room. I mean, this isn't all of the living rooms. If we wanted to put them all out there, I don't think I'd have a big enough screen. You wouldn't be able to read anything. But just the point is, each version of Christianity, each denomination, each way it's uh, perceived is very different from the other. And it's got its own terms and conditions. There's only one thing, really. The one thing that all of these have in common is they all think that they are right. They all think that they're right and everyone else is, well... They're just less right, or they're just half right. In every generation, this is really going back to like the second century, there's new and novel and sometimes toxic teachings and opinions that are based on biases that are woven into certain expressions of Christianity. These ideas are often, unfortunately, which just start as ideas, they're elevated to the status of doctrine, they're elevated to the status of um, theology. And it's all of a sudden, these ideas that were not essential once are all of a sudden essential to the faith. And if you reject them, if you hold them up and you realize, hey, these teachings don't actually line with the teachings of Jesus, well, you're out when that happens. You're out. You might not be physically out, but you'll be, you'll be like, you'll be 
cast to the outskirts of the church. You won't be in the inner circle because you don't believe these ideas that are not essential that have become essentials. And eventually, you know this, eventually non-essentials become obstacles. For people that are trying to turn to God, for people that are trying to turn to figure this Christianity thing out, non-essentials eventually become obstacles for people. They, and they, they force, non-essentials force people, thoughtful people, to step back and to take a deep breath and try to figure out, like, what is going on? What, uh, what is essential? What's fundamental versus what's just an idea? They need to, they need to rethink and reconsider. And, and sometimes in those times, their faith survives the exercise. It survives them stepping back from that specific living room. And sometimes... It doesn't. Sometimes, maybe this is your experience, they'll just step out of one living room and go into the next living room until they find something that sort of aligns with the word of Jesus, with the gospels, the teachings of Jesus. Last week, we talked about the law of Christ. Paul talks about the law of Christ, which Jesus says, as I have loved you, you must love one another. You got to love each other and love your enemies. And sometimes these ideas that come up are almost like they're anti-Christ. They're, and they're, there's no love entangled in there at all. And, and so you're, you're forced to sort of step back and, and maybe go to a different living room. If that's been your experience, I'm sorry that that's been the case. Um, when you're in those sort of environments, the, the, the new ideas, they're often backed by Scripture. And so when they're backed by Scripture, they're backed by the Bible, you, you go, oh, well, that's great. There's a, there's, there's a Scripture about it. And I want to tell you a secret that I don't want to leave this room, okay? No leaving this room. You give me a Bible, and out of context, I can justify just about anything. Out of context, you give me the Bible, we can almost justify anything. Because you're pulling it out of its context. And so we, we slap these Bible verses up with these ideas, and it's like, look, this is, this is biblically accurate, when really it's just not in the context of how it was meant to be. And so what we want to do, you, what we want to do is we want to ask the question, what is fundamental? What is fundamental? Because when people slap those Bible verses up with those statements, then it's, you go, okay, you know the Bible, but you wonder, do you really know who Jesus is? You know the Bible like the back of your hand, that's, that's great. But you wonder, do you know Jesus? So we want to answer, what is fundamental? What is essential? Versus what's merely cultural? What makes us comfortable? What's fashionable? What's peripheral? We want to strip everything back to its bones and get to the, the roots of our faith. And this is more important than it, uh, this is more important than ever in our lifetime, because when the cultural and peripheral are considered essential, Christianity eventually becomes untenable and unlivable for someone, for someone. It's no longer good news for all people. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Gospel means good news. And no longer is it good news for everyone. It becomes good news of great joy for a select few, for some people, but not all people. And if it's not good news, 
If the Gospels, if Christianity hasn't striking you as good news, maybe you haven't been exposed to the Christianity as it was intended to be. Maybe, maybe somebody has woven in threads of things that are not good news, but are actually divisive. So in part one, we, talked, we began with Peter's answer to Jesus' important question, and it's a question that we need to answer at some point in our life. Jesus asks a question to them. I don't recommend you asking this to your friends, but he says, what do, he asks, what do you say I am? Who do you say I am? He starts off by asking, who do other people say I am? And there's thinking like, your people on the streets, the word on the street is you're a reincarnated prophet. You're John the Baptist, but you've just, you've come back in a different form. And Jesus says, well, okay, that's not correct. He says, who do you say I am? And this is Peter's response. Peter replies with, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, you are correct. So it's essential to recognize and believe that Jesus is who he says he is. We have to start there. When it comes to our fundamental list, we have to start with that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's number one on our fundamental list. We're actually making a list. Jesus is God's son, and he's our king. He's not just any king. He's not just a temporary king, but he is God's final king. And unlike most kings, Jesus didn't leverage his presence or his status to draw attention to himself. He came to do something else, do something different, which leads us to our second fundamental. So during Jesus's final conversation with his disciples, uh, he's, it's the night before he's about to be crucified, but they don't know that yet. He's been leaving breadcrumbs of like what's to come, but you imagine the person that, uh, that you've spent the last three years with, uh, you wouldn't imagine that what happened to Jesus was going to happen. And so Jesus is preparing them for what will come. And even though he's been with them for years, they're still confused as to why he was there. They're still confused on, uh, as to like, what he's on about. And so they were confused about the purpose of Jesus' activity among them. They're confused about why he dragged them around to watch all his messages. Why, he, why they had to walk so many kilometers just to get from place to place. Why he wanted them to listen to him. Why they wanted him to experience life with him. They have expectations of him and are troubled by all he has said during this conversation. They have these expectations of who Jesus is, and as Jesus is is talking about these things, they're troubled about the things that he's saying. And Jesus realized that they had missed his purpose of living among them. They'd missed it. And unfortunately, there's so many Christians who have missed the purpose of Jesus living among them. Oftentimes, we are just as confused as the disciples were, and here's why. The, the, primary, the primary confusion, uh, confusion arises from us with how the Bible was presented to us, right? We are told that the, we're, when we get our Bible, believe it and read it. We're told that the Bible is God-inspired, which it is. We're told that God, it's God-inspired and it's equally applicable, which I have to say it is not equally applicable, because there is two, there's different sections of the Bible. You've got the Old Testament, which is about 
uh, God and, and a people group, God and a nation for a specific time. And then you've got the New Testament, which is between God and his people for all time. God and all people for all time. And the problem, don't, get, don't miss this, the problem is not the Bible. The problem is how the Bible has been taught and presented. And I'll get into this a little bit later, but the Old Testament, before Jesus, so the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everything before that is a shadow of the things to come. And I'll talk about that in a minute, but it's a shadow of the things to come. And so we're given the Bible, we're said, believe it, we read it, start, and oftentimes we'll just start in Genesis, and we'll read it like a book. We'll read it from Genesis all the way to the end. And before long, before we know it, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are just reduced to Bible stories. They just get mixed in with everything else that's in there. Because we're told that it's all the same, it's all equally important, Everything in the Bible is important, but it's not equally important. And that might shock you, but here's why I say that. There's one account of Noah and the flood. There's one account of Moses freeing the Israelites. There's all of these accounts of different prophets, one account each. But when it comes to Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John... What was so important that there is four documents of the life of Jesus that's included into the book that we call the Bible? The, the, the Gospels are not just Bible stories. And when we reduce them to just Bible stories, then it's just, it's just a part of the story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not Bible stories about Jesus. There are four separate accounts of the life of Jesus written in the first century, not just stories. They're not equal to everything else that happens in the Bible. Something, something new had taken place, something new that eclipsed everything else that had happened before. Not that what had happened before isn't important. Not that what had happened before isn't pointing to Jesus. I get that. But Jesus is not just a Bible story. There is no Bible without Jesus. There is no Bible without the resurrection of Jesus. You would have the Torah, but there would be no Bible. Back to Jesus' conversation with his apostles. So they had just finished sharing Passover, the meal, and the apostles are troubled by several things that Jesus had said. They just don't know how to take in what he's saying. And we'll pick it up right there. So they're troubled, and Jesus recognized that they're troubled. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And at this moment, it would have been totally understandable to the, to the, for the disciples to stand up and walk away. Like to say, like, it is so blasphemous what Jesus had just said, if he wasn't who he said he was, that they could just walk away based on their tradition, based on everything they believed. He's saying, trust me like you trust God. And in that moment, Jesus is equating himself with God. What that would be like is if I came up here and I said, look, things are tough culturally right now. We don't agree with all the values of this world, but you believe, you trust God, right? Trust me. If a, pastor, if, if a pastor ever says that, I'd say, you've got permission to stand up and walk out the room right away. 
And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you trust God, trust me. And it gets worse or better, depending how you look at it. Imagine your, I want you to do this. If you've read this, this uh, account before, I want you just to forget about some of the things that you've heard. And I just want you to have fresh ears. Fresh ears as what we're about to say. So I want you to pretend, I want you to imagine that you're leaning against the wall and listening to these conversations as Jesus is sharing this last meal with his disciples and, and he's talking about all these things that are to come, but they don't really understand what's going on. And then there, there's this, the rabbi, Jesus from Nazareth, says the following. And imagine how these words would just land on the disciples. He says, if you know me, as he's looking around the room, you will know my father as well. When you know me, you know my father. When the implication of this statement sets in, when they settle in, when this statement and the ones to follow settle in, it will redefine your view of God. Let me ask you this. When you think of God and when you think of Jesus, is there a tension? When you think of God and you think of Jesus, is there a tension? What emotions are come up when you think of God and when you think of Jesus? Do you have the same opinions on both? Here's a question I don't want you to answer out loud. Who do you like more? Who do you like more? Is, is your view of God the same as your view of Jesus? If, if you do, like the men in that room, their view of, of God and Jesus were not on par. Like many Christians today, if there's a tension that arises when you think about God, when you think about Jesus, and they're not, they don't, you don't have the same emotions with both, then we might have some deconstructing or some reconstructing to do. Because Jesus came to resolve that tension, and he doubles down on what he just said to them. He says, if you know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him, because you know me. And you have seen me in action. We've been together for three years. Just remember the ministry that we've just we've done. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the things that I've taught. Remember the countercultural uh, uh, parables that we've been talking about. And like it would be for us, for the disciples to wrap their head around what was being said to them in this moment, it was just too much. They knew they were not dealing with just a mere mortal, but they just couldn't actually wrap their heads around what Jesus was saying. So Philip was respectfully puts his hand up, and I don't know if he physically put his hand up, but you know when you have a question in your head that you're like, oh, is that a dumb question? I'm going to wait for someone else to answer it. I reckon that everybody in the room had this, this same thing that they were thinking, but Philip was the one that said it, and this is what he said. Philip said, Lord, we get it. Look at me, look at the Father, we get it. But just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Just show us who he is, and that will be enough for us. We know you, Jesus. We've been with you for three years. We've seen you in action, but we want to know God. We do want to know what God is like. We want to know him. We, We have the Torah, we have the prophets, we have priests, we have temples, but... Please just make it clearer about who God is. Just make God clearer. And Jesus thinks like, I just imagine, show me the Father, 
What do you think I've been doing for three years? What do you think, what, what have we been doing? You're still confused as to why I'm here. Why do you think I stuck around and dragged you around? I didn't come to just provide you with another Bible story. I came to you so that you would know what God is like. Not just to put another story in your, in your Bible, but so that you would know what God is like. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, don't you understand what, what's been going on? I mean, it's right under your nose. Anyone, he doubles down again, who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? How can you say that, Philip? And what we need to wrestle with, what if he's right? What if Jesus is as close as you and I will get to knowing God, about knowing what God is like? What if anything just short of Jesus isn't enough and anything just past Jesus just isn't on target? What if, what if knowing Jesus, what if Jesus is as close as you and I will get to knowing God? Jesus continues, He says, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. If you have heard my words, if you have heard my voice, you have heard the Father. If you've watched me for the last three years, you've watched the Father go to work. You've seen him in action. I do nothing based on my own initiative. I came to remove some of the mystery and add some personality. There's some, there's some mystery that's going on. You've heard the stories about Moses. You've heard the stories about the prophets. You go to the priests for them to sort of talk on behalf to God. Jesus says, I have come to remove some of the mystery and add some personality. I came to reduce the distance between you and God. There is a distance. I came to reduce it. Do you want to know what God is like? What God likes? What God has to say? And maybe how God would respond? Jesus would say, watch me. Watch me. Or as me and my dad would say, watch and learn. He'd say, like, watch me. If you want to know what I would say, how I would, would, would respond, listen to me. When you read your Bible, some of you have the red print in, in your New Testament, which is when Jesus is speaking. Reading that red print, it's like God is speaking. Jesus is as good as it gets. Jesus is as close as we get to God. So the Gospels are not additional Bible stories. They're not just four other books in your 66-book Bible. The Gospels are not Bible stories about Jesus. The Gospels document Jesus' explanation of what God is like. And as obvious as this should be, it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around it because of how pastors have used and referred to and teach the Bible. One thing, um, and I'm not being judgmental of anybody, don't 
but often we'll say, the Bible says this, the Bible says that when we're speaking of the Gospels, but it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are real people who were there at the time of Jesus, who documented everything they heard, who documented everything they saw, and they stood the test of time, and were these manuscripts were compiled into this, this book that we call the Bible. So I like to say Matthew or, or, or John documented this and just to make it more personal. But it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this sometimes just with how the Bible has been introduced sometime. If Jesus was telling the truth, when you open the New Testament and read the words of Jesus speaking, you are reading the words of God your Father. Jesus is speaking directly on behalf of God because he's God's son. He's God's spokesman to the world. And when we equate, when we equate the importance of everything in the Bible unintentionally, we negate or minimize the unique purpose of Jesus' life. Not, not his death, but of his life. And I'll tell you who did not make that mistake. In the first century, there's a guy, if you don't, his name is the Apostle Paul. And Paul started out as um, somebody that wasn't on board with the Jesus movement. There was, he wanted to be a part of what was in, in the past, what had been fulfilled. And so until one day, he had an encounter with Jesus on Damascus Road, and his eyes were opened. They were actually blinded first, but then Jesus opened his eyes, and he spent the rest of his life preaching to everybody that God had shown up in the person of Jesus of Nazareth to do what he had promised he would do in the past. Paul told them that they needed to join him in following Jesus, the Messiah, he insisted that Jesus' explanation of God was superior to everything that came before. And I referred to everything in the past as shadows. Here are Paul's words. He says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The, the past, it was necessary. That the old covenant was necessary for that time. But guys, Paul was saying, that has been fulfilled by the person of Jesus and something new, something entirely new has been introduced. You, you can tell some things about a thing by its shadow, but you cannot tell everything. You can tell a lot about something by seeing pictures and brochures, just like the snow and the Grand Canyon, but you just can't, you can't get everything because it's incomplete and they don't explain everything. Then Paul says, he says, the reality, so the, there, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, the reality is found in Christ, God's final king. The shadow caster has arrived. John began his gospels by saying that in the beginning, in the beginning was the word, and it came and dwelt among us. Jesus camped out with us so that we could know what the Father is like, so we would know what he was like, and, and what, he, what came before Jesus wasn't wrong. It was just incomplete. Jesus was for the fulfillment of what came before. And the author of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but I assume he liked coffee because Hebrews. Um, hey, he echoes the idea. He says this. He says, the law, again, the law is only a shadow. There's that word again, of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Since the beginning of the world, 
people have been searching for God. They all believed in the gods and were always looking up and trying to figure out what was behind life on earth. Every world religion was pointing to something beyond us until the arrival of Jesus. The world was left guessing. But with the arrival of Jesus, God made it as clear as he could for mortal people that Jesus came in the flesh to dwell among us and demonstrate for us what God is like and who God loves, which is everybody, which is everyone. Jesus, Jesus didn't simply have the best explanation for God. He didn't simply have the best explanation for God. Jesus is the best explanation for God. He is the best explanation for God. And again, I'll ask you, what if that's true? What does that do for your view of God? Does that change anything? Do you, do you have that tension? So here's the second thing we must believe as followers of Jesus. It's that Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like from our circumstances or our feelings. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, follow Jesus through the Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is on the second part of your Bibles. And and that's good news. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That's good news. It means that God loves you. It means that he loves you personally. It means that he has forgiven you because Jesus was given the authority to forgive sin at will. And perhaps... Perhaps you have some work and unlearning to do if, if those things, if Jesus and God aren't on, like line up for you. Does your view of God the Father align with your view of Jesus the Son? When you think of God and Jesus, is there a tension? Does it create different emotions depending on who you're thinking about? You won't know what the Father is like until you take the time to discover what Jesus is like. You'll get the clearest picture of Jesus by following him through the Gospels. To summarize our fundamental list so far, number one, Jesus is God's son and our king. Number two, Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. But Jesus came for another reason as well, which we'll pick up the discussion there next time in part three of our series, The Fundamentalist, Recovering the Essentials of Our Faith. God, we thank you for Jesus, that he came so that we could know you personally. God, we thank you for what he did on the cross for us, that he, he took the weight of our sin, our imperfections, Our imperfections were put on the shoulders of a perfect man. And that we were forgiven, God, so that we could come and be in a relationship with you. God, I pray that as the week goes on, that we would continue to look and and spend time with Jesus and, and read the things that you say through the Gospels, God. God, I want to pray a blessing over everybody here. God, I pray for good health. And I pray that every day that we would continue to take steps towards following you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Townsville area, we would love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service time, and some information about our fabulous kids and teenager environments, head to therockchristianfamily.com. We'll see you soon.